six-second ads, BS or the future, and how Hallmark conquered Hollywood. This is episode 69 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, I was just reflecting on episode 66 when I asked you if that was the sign of the devil. And you said, oh, I six, knew six, you six, were going to go here. With I almost it. cracked up during 69, which, <laughs> you know, has other associations we'll get to later. So, um, first of all, six-second ads. This is something that's been in the news a lot lately. This is from a piece by uh, a guy I've met before, Bob Gilbreth. Do you know Bob? Yeah, he's an ex p and Does that mean you know him, or does that mean you just looked him up on LinkedIn? I don't know him. <laughs> yes. yes, he's <laughs> my good friend Bob. Yes, he's an ex PNGer, which stands for Procter and Gamble. For those of you who are just tuning in, and he's now the founder and, comp- uh, and CEO of a company that uh, basically uh, does what he, in this article, urges uh, should be done. Surprisingly, <laughs> that's how the article comes out. He also wrote a book, which I really enjoyed, called um, uh, I don't know what it was called. But you liked uh, it. it runs off the page. But I really liked it. Yeah, you could look it up. Bob Gilbreth, former PNG um, uh, brand um, uh, strategist. Anyway, so here's the story. The, it's titled, I'm calling BS on six-second ad, quote, storytelling, end quote, which is interesting. Now, those who've been paying attention know that YouTube is making a big fuss about six-second ads. They did a big thing at the Cannes uh, Advertising Festival. They, as as Bob put it, they unleashed a breakthrough new creative storytelling platform for advertisers, the six-second pre-roll ad. Mm-hmm. Bob says, I submit that the six-second ad is yet another point on the path of disruption that we will look back and laugh at a final turning point away from the interruptive model of advertising and toward useful content marketing that our consumers actually value. Mm. So then he goes on to talk about how marketers have known forever that video is the best medium, in part because it gets in the way of your program, and it's unavoidable, at least until recently. Um, But everything marketers liked about video ads, he writes, the forced interruption with sight, sound, and motion is hated by video viewers. When given the option, reports show that from 70 to 94% of pre-roll video ads are skipped after five seconds. Of course, we've all had those moments when a publisher forces an unskippable 30-second ad in front of a 15-second clip, a study last year showed that pre-roll video ads of that type are the biggest reason for the rise in ad block software installs. So we hate it when they do this to us, Tom. Yeah. Listen, this is, this is um, you know, I, I try to get people to look at the marketplace like an ecology, you know, an interactive environment. And this piece, let's summarize what's going on with this, with this ecology. YouTube viewers don't like pre-roll ads, so they skip them after five seconds, and they have data that shows this. Right, right. Two, advertisers don't like users skipping the ads, so they make them unskippable. Three, (laughs) viewers really don't like unskippable pre-roll ads, so they install ad blocker software. Four, advertisers really don't like their ads being blocked, So they tell YouTube to fix the problem. And then the solution, YouTube creates an unskippable ad that ends just when the viewer would typically skip it. (laughs) Yeah, as Bob writes, perhaps six seconds is ideal because it's a little longer than the five seconds before YouTube offers a skip button, yet slightly below the eight and a quarter or less 
seconds that studies say is our average attention span, yeah, right? right? So it's brilliant. I mean, what's really brilliant is how YouTube spins it and then issues a challenge to agency creatives and filmmakers saying, let's see if you can make stories in six seconds, videos. Well, stories. that spin, just to be clear, that spin was is, quote, it's the optimal place to maximize user attention, but also to make sure we deliver a return on marketing investment. Well, optimize, yeah, optimize, <laughs> optimize attention, meaning, that, meaning, meaning they haven't clicked skip yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's what it means. Yeah, exactly. Look, I mean, at least marketers <clears throat> they are slightly advancing their understanding of how to engage busy people, right? Otherwise, they'd, they just simply run a six-second static image with a logo, mm -hmm. you know, top-of-mind awareness, mere exposure effect, blah, 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 other 1950s nonsense. You know, I wonder if that would be better, though. Yeah, I thought, I thought about that, and I, I actually think. So here's what's going on, and this is where I think people are missing it. If you load a specific YouTube video, right, I, I mean, you, me, I'll speak for both of us. I'm not mm -hmm. going to click a pre-roll ad and leave that video. No. Right? We're not doing that. So without further engagement by the viewer at the time of attention, I think you're right. I think advertisers would be better off running some kind of provocative, static image with their logo on it. That would probably be mm -hmm. more effective than trying to jam a story, a video story, into six seconds because who wants to pay attention to that? Or try to <laughs> Bob uses, it in his piece, he uses an example from Audi. And his, his quote underneath the example is, this looks like what happens when you're a little off and tapping the DVR fast-forward button through commercials. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, how do you make it work? So, so if you're going to have something for six seconds that's unskippable, have some image. I mean, why not, right? Well, of course, that's one answer. That's not the answer he provides, in large part probably because that's not the answer his business is built to provide. <laughs> his answer is a more extensive content marketing answer where he argues that, quote, brands and their agencies are starting to face a fundamental choice of whether or not to continue forcing an old interruptive model or treating their customers with care and providing content that they actually choose to watch. Our company uh, helps brings brand, bring brands into bigger ideas. Uh, we tap into the creative minds of passionate influencers. There's that word again yep. to come up with a new idea like this. And he uses an example. Did you click on the example, yeah, by the making way? Making a cake with Seven Up or something. Yeah, making a cake with Seven <laughs> Up. Which, what's interesting about that? I mean, I watched it. I thought, okay, well, this is something that will probably be more efficiently conveyed in bullet points. Um, it doesn't look particularly more appetizing in video. And then I actually clicked on the video. It's a YouTube video. I clicked on the YouTube video. It has 89 views. <laughs> I know. That's not a really good example to put up there, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, everybody is trying to sell their solution. It's, it, 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 as opposed to looking at what consumers really want and giving it to them. And we talked about this over and over and over mm -hmm. again. You know, I mean, it's, I get it. But I don't know about you. If that's the solution, I'm choking on content. So I well, yes, I'm, we're all choking on content. The other thing is, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, first of all, it's it feels to me like, as a mechanism to sell more Seven Up, this is a bit of a reach. You know that this is probably not the primary job I hire Seven Up for. <laughs> to make if a, you know what I to mean? To make a cake. 
I, to make a cake. And then this, the other thing is, I don't know that this translates across categories. I, want, I was once at a conference, the same one where Bob was at, in fact, and there was a guy, a, a high-placed uh, ad guy from Y&R, and the, and the conversation came up. You know, if brands are, the bigger brands get, the more brands can kind of um, uh, circumvent um, media companies and be themselves media. That was my argument. And this guy, I can't remember his name. I'll have to look it up. But he said, well, that works great for Nike. Um, but what if you're dental floss? <laughs> what, and what is that supposed to mean? What he means is, where's the, how is dental, where's the movie about dental floss? You know, where's the dental floss content marketing that's so valuable and <laughs> helpful? There are some products that need to be advertised because there's they're just not inherently there's not a story you can make about them that's all that useful. Uh, I, yeah, well, maybe you team up with like uh, Nike and have Usain Bolt jumping over dental floss. Well, I, see, there you're putting your advertising hat on. No, I mean, you know, listen, Mentos and Coke, you know, so. I, I don't know. Look, the point is, the as soon as people realize that the way it used to work, this is what I don't think people understand. Still, to this day, they don't understand that the way it used to work, which was limited exposure to brands because of limited mm -hmm. spell, uh, shelf space, mm -hmm. we had people's attention because we had limited access to media, you could do this stuff. You could run these brand awareness campaigns because then when someone went into the store, it came to the top of their mind and they went, yeah, that's the one I want. That doesn't work anymore. Not when there's like mm -hmm. 100 variations of peanut butter on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the game has changed, but people seem to want to take the old rules and apply them to the new game. And they're getting frustrated. And the new game is going to be our second topic, which I'll get to in a second. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asecker and Mark Ramsey. The new game, Tom, if there's any brand that I guess you could argue is symbolic of the old game, it would be the brand located in the stores where you go and somebody's birthday is coming. You need a card. You go to the Hallmark store. You buy a card. You buy some wrapping paper. You're done, right? Yep. Talk about kind of a staid old brand that you let's be honest you don't expect that much from it right no no i, I have you have you bought a card lately i think i have bought they're a card how much? relatively they're lately how much? but like four i know they're, they're crazy expensive for, yeah, exactly. now yeah yeah they're crazy expensive those are not the ones that play songs when you open them <laughs> so this is a piece from media from our friends at media village which features our show um and it's from the uh, tca the television critics association television well what does that have to do with hallmark tom that's weird. Hallmark meets Hollywood in grand style is the title of the piece because I think most people are generally aware that there is a Hallmark channel. It turns out there's more than one Hallmark channel, and you might say, well, how in the world did they get into that? And let's face it, how deep are they really in it? Well, you would be surprised. Crown Media Family Networks, which is the parent company of Hallmark, played host to the Television Critics Association Thursday with a star Phil Soiree at an iconic location in Beverly Hills. The theme was where Hallmark meets Hollywood, an acknowledgement of the rise and success of Hallmark Channel and Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, their other channel, as one of the most prodigious studios in Hollywood. Tell them, Mark. Now, Tell them how many now, movies. 
It's unbelievable. Now producing more than 100 movies per year. Unbelievable along with hundreds of hours of original scripted and unscripted series programming. In terms of content, Hallmark is about to dramatically expand even further. They've got a new network uh, coming on uh, called Hallmark Drama. Um, and in addition to that, according to this piece, they're announcing their first ever publishing company. Yep. So they're going to go old school book-wise, both E and regular. And um, so they're taking uh, proposals for that right now. So it's really, really amazing. At the end, it says, among uh, the returning series, season five of Hallmark Channel's wildly popular When, when Calls the Heart will return with the two-hour sneak peek uh, during the network's annual popular programming event, Countdown to Christmas, hmm. which brings with it the premieres of, guess how many, 21 new. I know holiday-themed movies before returning with 10 new episodes. It's unbelievable. They have their own Cary Grant of Hallmark. Uh, I, listen, this article blew my mind when you sent it to me. It was such a surprise. It, it's because I'm not their audience. But look, at this mm -hmm. is happening to me more and more as the marketplace fragments and brands appeal to particular groups of people. People will send me something that I've never heard of. Mm -hmm. And show me the results. And, and, and I am just stunned. And, mm -hmm. and the interesting thing is, this is what we have been saying over and over again. When the barriers come down and the marketplace fragments, people start developing an identity around what it is that they choose based on their predispositions, based on their beliefs, all of that. And what Hallmark did was said, well, then let's just go deeper and deeper into this, right? right. Because they're not just going right. to, even Hallmark Publishing, think about this. This is what I, I found like just really interesting. They're not just going to go out and look for books and eBooks to publish that appeals to that audience, to that identity. They're going to take some of their original movies that mm -hmm. were favorites and turn those into novels. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, everything that they're doing is exactly what all of these brands need to start realizing they need to do. Because this broad audience is just going to be chopped up into smaller and mm -hmm. smaller audiences. And people are going to find out, can I appeal to this size audience and grow mm -hmm. my business around that audience? And if I can, I that's what I do. I had a very similar conversation today with a, with a broadcaster. It was a, a, a non-commercial Christian broadcaster bemoaning the trends in the industry, the trends in demographics that aren't favoring his station, his format. And I said, well, and he said, what, you know, how do you see this problem? And I said, well, begin by asking what business are we in and what are we trying to do? Right. And if, what is our purpose? You know, if our purpose is something bigger than, you know, creating a radio station people will pay for, right. uh, as it certainly is if you're a non-commercial Christian station, then double down on that. And Hallmark for generations has been about uh, sharing uh, feelings, right? That's been what the brand stand. I, I think their, their uh, mantra is caring shared is their mantra, if I remember correctly. And everything has gone back to that. And then, of course, what has it been, 20 years, 25 years, Tom? 
since the Hallmark Hall of Fame. Remember oh, that? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. When everything stopped when that came on, and that was really the first example that illustrated this direction. And all they've done, as you indicate, is gone deeper and deeper and deeper into that emotion for that audience, leveraging, I mean, the, the, the crown even today is the little seal that you get with your card that you stick on the back of the envelope. Yep. I mean, that emblem that everyone puts on the back of their Hallmark cards is the symbol for this media empire that they're building with more than 100 original movies. It really is utterly textbook. And it is, as you indicate, just going deeper into that which we're famous for and that which we're good at and, and, and that which the audience expects from us and comes to us for and values from us, yeah, right? Yeah, you got it right there. Look, you just gave away the, the playbook for 21st century brands, which is identity and emotion. Now, how do mm -hmm. I bring it to life with products, with services, mm. with mm. entertainment, with, with events? It, it mm -hmm. doesn't matter. It's around those two things. Mm -hmm. All right, I hope you're charging for this episode. I <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not. I think this was commercial free. Oh, okay. I don't All right. It's time for <laughs> rants and raves, Tom. I've got a couple of, I don't know. I hope they're good ones this week. How about you? Uh, yeah, I got it. I don't know. I got one because it's, it's near and dear to my heart. So it's a, it's, but it's a rant. So sh should I just do it? Oh, wow. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So, and this is similar to this idea of what is Hallmark, right? What is it? It's a brand name, right? Hallmark. But what does it really mean? So think about how crazy and dynamic this marketplace is. This is a marketplace right now where Amazon is creating their own secret brands to draw in customers. Mm -hmm. from Everything from lingerie to trail mix. Are you talking about Amazon Basics? No, oh, listen, yeah. Have you looked at some of these brands that nobody even knows are, are out there? Go look at go – the, go to the trademark office and just – Find, do a search on Amazon. You'll see these different brands that they're creating. And you don't know it's an Amazon brand. This hmm. is a marketplace where Disney is pulling its movies from Netflix and, gonna, and they're going to create their own competing streaming service. Right. This is a marketplace where Netflix is buying up comic book companies so they can mm -hmm. create new content and drive subscriber growth. The race for intellectual property is... Uh, unquenchable, it's un, if I it's, can mix my metaphor. It's, it, listen, the, the, the amount of innovation that's going on in this marketplace right now is overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. And then I read about one of America's most iconic brands, and they're dipping its toes into the wild and woolly waters of reinvention by, get ready for this, Mark, shortening mm -hmm. their name. Uh-oh. Right? That's right. Dunkin' Donuts is running. No. They're running <laughs> test, Mark tests to determine whether or not it's time to drop donuts from its name. Why not just drop Duncan? So listen, listen, <laughs> I'll tell you why. The company statement spells this out. It says, while we remain the number one retailer of donuts in the country, as part of our efforts to reinforce the Dunkin' Donuts is a beverage-led brand and coffee leader. And coffee oh, wow. leader. We will be testing oh, no. signage in a few locations that refer to the brand simply as Duncan. Now, I've heard of, because I've, I've been behind closed doors a lot of these businesses, I've heard of values-led brands, and I've heard of customer-led mm -hmm. brands. I've never heard of a beverage-led brand in my <laughs> life. 
<laughs> but but again, it, <laughs> the, they're running tests now. Tests. Now, here's another remark by a company spokesperson. Hmm. He's, the spokesperson says, we have been referring to ourselves simply as Duncan in our advertising for more than a decade, ever since we introduced our America Runs on Duncan campaign. So what are they testing? A decade. Now, if we're going to get hmm. really crazy, the brand also hopes to attract more health-conscious consumers by dropping donuts from the name. Not by dropping them from the store. <laughs> Just from the name. Because that'll fool a lot of people. Listen, I am so confused by all of this, right? I don't even know. Like, so what does Dunkin' mean? What are people going to be dunking into all of those beverages that are leading them wherever they're going? I, I don't know. The, that, that, this whole there, thing. There are two things that come to mind there. First of all is, is obviously there's a certain uh, desire to be, I don't know, star dunks, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the second thing is, it kind of reminds me of my many trips to the shack, you know, after it was called Radio Shack, when, you know, it was just the shack for two yeah, or three I, exactly, minutes. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> two or three minutes, I think, before they, they, they disappeared. It's funny. It's like the shortening is the first step to disappearance. So I would just... You know, if you shorten it one more word, there's no words left no, I, at all. No, I know. What, do you, what Burger King goes to burger. Then, you know, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wonderful one. I've got a couple. I'm not sure. I don't think these are either rants or raves. I think they're somewhere in the middle. The first one, I think, relates to your topic of innovation or the lack thereof. Um, and this is something. Who was it? William Goldman who said nobody in Hollywood knows anything. Exactly. Is that what yeah, he said? Yeah, he did. <laughs> so... Um, uh, this is uh, I, one of the trades, uh, the Hollywood trades printed this this week. I guess they took a photograph off of uh, Warren Littlefield's wall where he has in, uh, framed, enshrined uh, the uh, research report, the test report on the, um, the original episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> so I'm going to read to you, Tom, the assessment uh, of uh, that, the test audience on the original episode of Seinfeld. Are you ready? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I am. Okay. It was called the Seinfeld Chronicles at that time. It opens as follows. Pilot performance, colon, weak. <laughs> the Seinfeld Chronicles had portions that were very popular, most notably the stand-up routines Jerry Seinfeld performed at a nightclub locale. But the more typical sitcom scenes of Jerry and his friends at common day locations were negatively received. As one viewer put it, you can't get too excited about going to the laundromat. <laughs> No segment of the audience was eager to watch the show again, but men and 18 to 49-year-olds were more inclined to give it a try than were women, kids, teens, and viewers over 50, i.e. almost everybody else. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld, who was familiar to about a quarter of the viewers, a quarter of the viewers, created on balance lukewarm reactions among adults <laughs> and teens and very low reactions among kids. <laughs> which probably hasn't changed. On stage, adults and teens enjoy Jerry as an intelligent, quick-thinking comedian with a natural, clean, observational sense of humor. In his, quote, boring, end quote, ordinary, everyday life, he appeared sensitive but powerless, dense and naive. <laughs> Jerry's, <laughs> Jerry's loser friend George, who was not a particularly forceful character, actually appeared somewhat more in charge, and viewers found it annoying. Imagine that, annoyed. 
that Jerry needed things to be explained to him. There was a loose connection between Jerry's onstage material and his outside life. Viewers were unclear whether Jerry worked as a comedian or if his routine took place outside of the show as commentaries. The movement back and forth was also considered abrupt and somewhat disorienting, especially to elder viewers. The people familiar with Jerry Seinfeld particularly enjoyed his stand-up routines, but they resented it being interrupted by the storyline. <laughs> <laughs> and most indicated that they had seen him perform most of the material before. None of the supports were particularly liked, and viewers felt that Jerry needed a better backup ensemble. George was negatively viewed as a wimp who was only mildly amusing. Viewers said he whined and did not like his relationship with Jerry. Uh, Kessler, later the character who later became Kramer, had low scores, but was the best of supports. He mildly amused some 12 to 34-year-old males and reminded some of their own weird neighbors. The overall show was considered contemporary, unusual, and fairly humorous, but the comedy primarily played with young adults and it reminded some people of Gary Shandling's show. Despite the slice-of-life approach, the program was considered only mildly realistic and believable, and many did not identify with the things with which Jerry was involved. Now, there you have it. That's the assessment. You know why? On the pilot of Seinfeld. That's because these people who do assessments mm -hmm. feel a need to do that. I, I don't even know how to explain that to you, but the people who get paid to do assessments have to assess you, which means they have to find fault. It's the same kind of junk that came back with people in Hollywood that read my, my screenplay. You know, I wish I, I should read that to you. It, it's, it's interesting as hell. It, but but mm -hmm. it, once you understand, to, to William Goldman's point, no one knows mm -hmm. anything. Well, that's obvious, huh? Yeah, yeah it's very <laughs> obvious. <laughs> it just goes to show you. The other thing I think that's notable about this, and I speak as someone who does research, is you have to realize that when you call on regular people to be critics, yeah. they, they will rise to the occasion. You know, they will be critics Of course for they you. will. The, the question is... You know, first of all, does a pilot of anything represent a relationship with anything? And the answer is no. Exactly. Uh, and when you call and do people view television programming the way critics view television programming? And that answer is no also. Right. So anyway, uh, interesting lesson now enshrined forever on Warren Littlefield's wall in Santa Monica. I love it. Um, the second thing I have for you, are you familiar with a site called Mr. Skin? Oh, no. This is better not have <laughs> anything to do with the 69 episode thing. Uh, no, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> okay. No, actually, I don't you know just Mr. made a connection. You just made a connection I didn't intend. Well, that's how so the brain just works. for anyone the who's brain listening, works like that. It's all contextual. For anyone who's listening, just know that that's all from Tom and not from I me. Didn't so come no, up with this, 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 skin this is. I wasn't aware of this, but apparently, there's a billboard on uh, Hollywood Boulevard that features forty-three thousand four hundred twelve nude scenes, all the female nude scenes ever. Uh, uh, screenshots of all of them packed into one billboard, fortunately. Otherwise, you know, it could never exist. 43,000 of them. Onto a so one this billboard? Is one billboard. This is to celebrate the 18th birthday of MrSkin.com, which is the web's top repository of mainstream, mainstream screen nudity. <laughs> it's uh, The article from Hollywood Reporter said, they erected a billboard. And I said, okay, well, I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> But it's at the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and La Brea Avenue, and all 43,000-some-odd female nude scenes on its servers are represented there. Um, the site really heated up, by the way, after it was featured by Judd Apatow in, uh, uh, 
which film was it now? Um, uh, in Knocked Up, um, the creator of the site uh, calls that uh, product placement the second best movie product placement of all time after E.T. and Reese's Pieces. What? <laughs> so anyway, the founder of this thing, Mr. Skin's earliest available scene, this is just interesting, is Hedy Lamar in 1933's Ecstasy. The most recent is from Netflix's Glow. Among movie stars, Susan Sarandon notches the most nude appearances at 15, while Angelina Jolie is a close second at 14. Uh, McBride, the owner, the founder, claims that studios and PR agencies send him screeners with nude scenes bookmarked. Unbelievable. <laughs> Although he won't name them. That's what publicity has come to. And that stars are more flattered than creeped out by the attention. And this is my favorite part. When Alexandra Daddario who's True Detective... Did you see True Detective season yes. one? Then you would remember Alexandra Daddario, whose True Detective lap dance scene is among the most viewed, won the site's 2017 Wacket Bracket. Oh. <laughs> I didn't make it up. She tweeted, To all the men who've ever turned me down, now all you can do is look at photos and cry the salty tears of regret. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and this is my other favorite part. Not immune to Hollywood's gender parity debate, McBride founded MrMan.com in 2014, featuring the goods on everyone from the goods on everyone from Harvey Keitel to Jake Gyllenhaal. But traffic has disappointed. We were naive, he admits. We thought there would be a huge amount of women coming, but it's mostly gay men. <laughs> Mr. McBride obviously never asked his wife. <laughs> Unbelievable. And all these images would... are on a billboard? One billboard that contains all the images, yes. Can you even make out any of the images? Of course not, no. So this is like that million-dollar homepage. Remember that thing that guy did years ago, that website in the early 2000s where he, he sold pixels, a dollar per pixel, mm -hmm. and you could buy like a little ad on this million-dollar homepage? And, and the only people that made a million dollars, I think, was him. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in fact, the billboard says, "Dear Hollywood, you've made forty-three thousand four hundred twelve nude scenes for film and TV. Paren, all featured on this billboard, <laughs> which right, which right there should tell you you can't make out any of the scenes. It just looks like a weird textured uh, background. Gracious, um, gracious. So there you go. Well, Very interesting. But that's innovation uh, again, for you. That is, that yet another form of innovation. You're absolutely right. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever the heck else you want. While you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village. We love Media, love Media Village, Media. don't we, Tom? Yeah, they're the best. And Google Play Music because, of course, our, you know a lot of music on this show. Absolutely. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. You can complain to us there, and you can try and set us against each other there. <laughs> Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, please keep it to yourself. Exactly. Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Complain if you will, but just know that no one's listening. <laughs> Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. Jeff is amazing, and you can find him at jeff schmidtcom for the one and only Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey, and thank you for listening.